Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for February 2015. I am writer hyphen critic hyphen Mordecai reboot Lee Zachariah. <laughs> and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm writer hyphen director hyphen inappropriate face toucher Paul Anthony Nelson. <laughs> and with us today, joining us for our next segment... Our very special guest, Desiree Ackhaven. But before we get to her, the films of this month. I am talking in a very strange, announcery way. I don't know why I'm doing it, and now I can't stop. <laughs> Some of the films from last year finally starting to trickle through to Australia. Uh, Selma is the big one, uh, one of the big ones. Mm. Uh, I think we're getting Inherent Vice in next month. But Selma, the story of Martin Luther King's Selma March, that feels from the outside when you have it described to you that it's quote-unquote worthy Oscar bait, despite the fact that we now know that it didn't fare that well at the show. But I feel like it's one of those stories that can only be told in one of two ways. You either have the big Spielbergian music-swelling thing, which I love, or you have the handheld verite style, which I also love. And what I love about this film is that director Anna DuVernay... Ava Ava DuVernay. DuVernay... uh, issues both of those options in favour of this sort of stylistic flair that it services the story that she's telling, but it also gives it this tremendous energy that just... I mean, this is... The only thing that annoys me about this film is I don't like seeing what may be my favourite film of the year in February, because <laughs> it means the rest of the year's a wash wow. for me. I, I, God, I love this film. I was not quite as impressed. Yeah? I kind of wanted something more subtle and more intimate. I, can't, I think I wanted the handheld in Secret Conversations version. I just... Yeah, yeah. I loved Oyelowo's performance, David Oyelowo's performances as MLK Amazing. so much. And yeah. I thought in that kind of movie, it just would have blown hairs back. Like, I, I thought this film has really great moments. There's a couple of shots and there's a couple of... Um, speeches that are amazing and make your hair stand on end. And the film is deeply moving, but it's deeply moving because these things actually happened. It's deeply moving due to these events. I don't know how much is due to the filmmaking. Oh, God, no, I, because, dis- I disagree entirely. Because I-, I think so much of it is so heavy-handed. Like, there's, yeah. there's, there are the strings kind of kicking in at kind of moments where I didn't want strings kicking in. I think in. if you're feeling emotion in the film, it's because of the filmmaker. Like, the events... Help, but like in a bad director. I mean, we've seen bad directors handle important. Yeah, yeah. And look, I'm not saying she's a, like. I'm, yeah, no, I know. I'm saying know. it's a, it's a good film. Yeah. I just I would have preferred something a little. More. There's just moments where it dropped the ball for me. There is mo- there are moments that pulled me out of the film, and there are moments where I was completely sucked into it. And yeah, and I don't know. I just I, I just kind of got to the end, and I I, I just wanted more of. Um, yeah, I, the, a, lot, a lot of the private conversations felt like speeches. Mm. And it's like, I don't mind the speeches feeling like speeches, but private conversations shouldn't feel like one character is holding forth at another. Sure. Um, and there were a couple of sort of intimate moments where it was kind of like, yeah, that's the kind of film I'm looking for. That's what I want. And then it'd do the other thing. I, I think you're right about it kind of employing both kind of styles in different ways, but I, I think... Yeah, I kind of wish it stuck to one. I'll, t- I'll tell you what elevated it for me, and it's not just... That, that stopped it just being another... Okay, ticking the box, time to do an MLK film. Mm. It's that so much of the film is the process See, story. I wish it were more of a procedural. Oh, how, I've never seen a film that's really? more of a... Okay, th- this film goes into so much detail about the minutiae of these movements, how it's not just 
I have a dream and the force of my argument. I'm going to give this grand speech and everyone's going to be won over. We go into so much detail about, okay, at this point, do we say this or do we say that? Do we fight back here? Or do, we, do we turn back on the bridge or do we sit down or do we, like, there's, there's so much There's a lot of conversations detail. with Lyndon Johnson about the same thing. Like, I, oh. yeah, I just kind of felt, I don't know. I feel, I, that, I, I, I feel that's, that's the biggest insight we've ever had into how real change happens in that, you know, it's not just the lofty ideals. It's also the mechanics on the ground. God, I, that, I mean, I, I'm probably going to sound like an asshole at this conversation, but I just, yeah, I don't know. It just not an asshole, but I a racist. Sure. Yeah, yes. I, I just didn't feel it. I, I felt like there were two, I, I don't know, I just got distracted by the speechifying, I guess, and the yeah. kind of the, and the, the, you know, the film kind of, the film's heavy hand kind of crashing in on me that I just wanted... That's the thing. I wanted that verite, go deep kind of... Like, I thought, for example, I thought Lincoln was more of a procedural than this was um, in terms of getting something done and, and that sort of process. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I just kind of... I'll, I'll pay that. I, I wanted, pay that. Yeah, I just wanted more of that. Because yeah. like, that sort of stuff I really liked. I really liked, Like, I love the stuff about when they came into, into Selma yeah. and there was the college group who were pissed off because, like, well, we've been here for two years mm. and you people screwed up this operation over here. What, what, you know, what makes you think you're going to do any better here? And, and, and all it, that stuff was fascinating. And how and, many films would take that away? would go, oh, we don't want anyone within the movement criticising. We only want racists criticising yeah. Luther King. But, no, these are people within the movement yeah, who just was, have a different approach. Yeah, and that, that I thought that, was interesting. Yeah, right. And that's what I mean. Like, there were moments of the film where I was like, that's the film I wanted to see. That's the film. And I feel like the film was about 60% of the film I wanted to see and mm. 40% of the heavy-handed Spielberg take. I guess I just wanted it to be 100. But, yeah, I mean, the performances are wonderful. I mean, yeah, led by by Oyelowo. But, um, mm. yeah, I always love seeing Wendell Pierce and things. Yeah. <laughs> I love Bunk. <laughs> Hell of a cast. Well, another film about social change from this month is Rosewater. Um, it's the directorial debut of The Daily Show's John Stewart, who I am a huge fan of, uh, as you know. <laughs> and this is... You didn't see this, did you? No, sadly. I really want to, though, because I do love Stewart as well and interested to see what take he has. Well, it's, it's interesting because it's about... It's based on a book by an Iranian journalist who was jailed in part because of an interview he did on The Daily Show. Mm. Now, I remember when that interview aired, I remember watching that at the time and all of Jason Jones's uh, reports from Iran. Mm. And, yeah, I remember it all going down at the time and, and uh, it's fascinating to see it all processed through a film, I guess. Is there a slight mea culpa kind of... From Stuart I, here? Sorry, I kind of got you locked up. Here's a movie. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I don't know. I, it's what The interesting thing about it is that I think because you expect Stuart to play up the role of The Daily Show and his own mm. part in it, because that's what you would expect a filmmaker to do if they were involved he sort of goes the other way and maybe overcorrects just a shade too much. I kind of wanted more of that. Yeah. Look, it's entirely possible that I'm making the assumption, because I'm so familiar with it, that they don't explore it enough. Mm. Um, but I, I do kind of wish there'd been a little more of that. But I think it's a really terrific film, and the style is beautiful, and he handles the drama and the comedy brilliantly, and mm. there's some real filmmaking flair in there. It's... 
you know, it, it, it's not a perfect film, but mm. it's for a debut, it's astounding. Yeah, right. And if he makes more like that, I, I think I can start to come to terms with him leaving The Daily Show. <laughs> it's <laughs> a difficult works. process for me. This is also the month that saw, finally, the release of the Wachowski's new film, Jupiter Ascending. Mm. I really, really love giving the Wachowskis the benefit of the doubt, because even though... I didn't actually love the first Matrix film. Like, I liked it at the time, but I didn't love it the way everyone else did. I had, you know, mixed feelings about the sequels. But it's the Speed Racer and Cloud Atlas that made me avowed Wachowski fans. I love those films Mm. so much. And I think the weirder they go, they have this particular brand of weird that intersects either perfectly or disastrously with mainstream tastes, you know? And I don't think Jupiter Ascending is that far removed from the films of theirs that work. Like, I didn't really like it, but I think it's a sto- only a stone's throw from The Matrix, right down to the Chosen One story and the human beings' as farmed resource threat. Mm. But, I mean, look, for me, I, I really did want to like it, and I, I didn't, but I kind of want to re-watch it. I thought it was campy as hell, yeah. but the thing I've always loved about the um, Wachowskis, and I'm probably going to end up saying this word a lot during this podcast, but I lo- I've always loved their sincerity. Yeah. They seem to care about the mad stuff that, you know, these mad stories that they tell. Cloud Atlas is such a sincere film and such a, such a kind of a plea that, and it's also such a bizarre Hail Mary pass of a film, and it's mm. shaggy and it doesn't always work, but when it does, it works beautifully. Um, I kind of feel that Bound, The Matrix, and Speed Racer are the three films where they've they've done exactly what they set out to do and hit it on the button. Jupiter Ascending is really woolly. It's a a shaggy beast of a thing. Um, It's kind of Dune meets Flash Gordon. It it kind of reminded me of one of those very strange 70s big budget sci-fi movies. Yeah, right. Like Logan's Run or Saturn 3 or... um, The Flash Gordon. uh, Zardoz or Flashy Flash Gordon. Like... It's one of those kind of films that you're not sure whether it's taking the piss half the time, but it also seems to really mean what it's going on about. And in this case, basically the villains in this film are uber-capitalists. They're this sort of, you know, evolved strain of humans who have, you know, own and consume enormous swathes of the universe, mm. entire planets. And basically it's it, it de- basically depicts... The fact that they, you know, Earth is their prize um, source of, you know, of, of new energy, and this is the, like Earth, the planet that all they all want to feed on, because mm. it's the past generations of, of humans and all this sort of stuff, and we distill them, and it's like it's essentially capitalism as cannibalism. Yeah, and yeah, I've, that's that's a really good description. And I found that really interesting and very much on point with their kind of lefty social views, which I've always loved. <laughs> I've, I love that they're they're always kind of there's always this kind of um, sort of, you know, left-leaning, sort of socialist kind of, um, what do you call it, um, socially progressive kind of agenda. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, I think this film has it too. It also has Channing Tatum playing half-man, half-dog, and Mila Kunis saying that she loves dogs. Um, it also... <laughs> it also... It's basically know, the, the science fiction remake of Must Love Dogs. It is. I assume. I haven't seen it, that. It looks but what did you, you think of Academy Award winner, uh, Eddie Redman? was quite interesting. He goes for it. I he love really that he does. pushes it so And that's much. the thing. I think the Wachowskis go for it. Like, I think it's not all successful. And mm. there's 
I kind of went on this emotional journey from the first 20 minutes being, eh, not, this is going to be horrible, to I'm actually having fun now, to okay, this is getting a bit long in the tooth, to eh, that was fun. Redmayne totally goes for it in a performance that wouldn't be out of place in something like Dune. Yeah. Oh, Dune. Yeah, Dune is what I was thinking of yeah. when I was watching it. That the you know specifically the the Lynch version. Yes. Yeah, it's got a lot in common with that. Yeah, that's a, it struck me as Dune meets Flash Gordon. Yeah. So on on those sort of elements, like it's it's this kind of giant. Like, yeah, I I don't know if I could honestly say to somebody this is a good film, but I had fun. I did. I I had fun with it, and I know. And once again, I feel like the I mean the Wachowskis seem to be kind of having more, like, they're drawing upon, like, it's kind of got a part Matrix, part young adult novel yeah. sort of structure, and they're trying to make something that's more commercial, but their weirdness can't help but keep punching through. They're all, um, and it's their weirdness in terms of their taste in what they think works and yeah. what a mainstream audience wants. But, you know, they're fascinating. Look, could they have given Mila Kunis's Jupiter more to do? Yes. She's constantly getting saved. That's kind of annoying. She cleans a lot of toilets. How much more do you want her to do? <laughs> and yes, toilet cleaning. Um, you know, Redmayne's bizarre. I think Tatum's great. I think he completely sells it. Yeah, yeah. He absolutely commits to this character, and I, I love that about it. You know, Sean Bean's great as well. Look, I, you know, like, it's silly as hell. I had fun. You know what? I didn't like it, and I think it's... I didn't really enjoy watching it. Yeah. I think it's really overstuffed with too much exposition and plot and there too much world building. But <laughs> so many concepts and different aliens and different kinds of things. Yeah. And... But despite all that, despite not really liking it, whenever I think about it, I kind of smile. So <laughs> yeah. I guess that's a good thing. Well, you know, the Wachowskis are good for anything. It's making us smile. <laughs> All right, we are now joined uh, live from London via New York uh, by our special guest, uh, Desiree Ackhaven. Desiree, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for, for coming on. You, um, we were just uh, saying that uh, you've just flown to London and you know we're based in Melbourne and, and we just should, should have communicated on the, on the continents better. Uh, that, that's our fault. We'll own that. <laughs> Sorry you flew okay. to the wrong country. Yeah. Now we want to. All right. Yep. I was I was thinking of something funny to say and I failed miserably. So <laughs> it's fine. Skype is not good for impromptu comedy. That's actually the tagline for this show. I was thinking of trying to think of something oh. funny to say and failed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we wanted to kick off by talking about something that's been on our mind for a while. And uh, given the filmmaker of the month, we're going to be covering in, in a few moments. We thought this would be the perfect opportunity to discuss whether writers are unfairly sidelined as the authors of films because you know you, you think about a, a film's author and the first place your mind goes is to the director and you know we've built a podcast around this very concept uh, so we're equally guilty of it but do, do we think that writers have a bad go of it or is it fair that the director is is given the sort of final line what's Top about this is that the kinds of films I was looking over the filmmakers on that you discuss on your podcast and the ones that you've interviewed and uh, auteurs that I I grew up adoring and they're writer directors they're hyphenates mm -hmm. so that in itself is like the big respect is given to and we sometimes make the assumption that people that directors all write their own films because of that 
so that's the thing that I think it's more like Hollywood films that are misappropriated to certain directors, but they also pass through so many hands throughout the process of writing and rewriting that they no longer belong to anyone, uh, but rather like this script doctor that is trying to cobble together what will make the most amount of money. Yeah. That's interesting because, yeah, with the rise of the auteur theory, this is something that's occurred. But it's also like we, we think of writers like, um, obviously, the person we're about to talk about, but also someone like Aaron Sorkin, um, who, or, you know, who has a very distinctive voice in terms of, of, of their writing. And, and yet, you know, we kind of think of things like, you know, is the, the, the American president, say, or, the, or A Few Good Men as Rob Reiner films when, I guess, you know, when looking at the respective canons of both writer and director, they're very much more Aaron Sorkin films. Well, mm-hmm. that, that, it's interesting you say Sorkin because the only screenwriters I've ever seen credited on a poster, and I don't mean down the bottom, I mean, you know, <laughs> up there, Aaron Sorkin yeah. for The Social Network and Tom Stoppard for, I think it was Anna Karenina, he did the adaptation. And that, mm-hmm. that's the only time I've seen the writers really given uh, that sort of billing. And I think a lot of that is down to the, I, I guess, the rise of the, the showrunner uh, on TV. And it's no coincidence that Sorkin is a showrunner and uh, that showrunning has become mythologized. And we see them as, because on TV it's different. The director isn't the author the way the, the head writer is. And I think it's mm-hmm. a lot to do with final say. Who do we envis- envision having the final say? And on TV, it's the mm-hmm. writer. On film, it's the director. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I was writing, not to jump the gun here, but I was I was reading some interviews with Charlie Kaufman and... Uh, oh, did I let the cat out of the bag? No. Because that's supposed to be a surprise. <laughs> no, they know. We're, they know. We're, it, we'll, we'll bleep it like Beatrix Kiddo. I know, yeah. <laughs> That sounds good. Uh, <laughs> that he was saying that the experience that he has work, he's not like most writers. He expects to be a part of the process from beginning to end. And that he was really frustrated with the experience of working with George Clooney because he was really locked out of the process of mm-hmm. production. And that film went in directions. Uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is the film I'm talking about, that it went into a direction that he didn't approve of. And that's you know one of the few films he's written that I don't quite under it doesn't seem to flow with the rest of his work i was wondering how i would feel uh, like being on the writing end of that if someone else directed my work and i've actually had that happen in the last year uh, a short film i wrote was directed in the u.s and it was a really weird uh process because i didn't actually feel possessive of the project the way I do, like if I'm making my own film. And I don't know if maybe it was because it was a commission. I was specifically asked to write this script um, rather than writing something on spec that, you know, came from me. But throughout the whole process, I I really had no problem seeing the director as the author, um, even though I'd I'd sort of written the script. Um, Was it his concept? Uh, it, it, it wasn't actually. I got thrown a few uh, a few elements like we're shooting here. It needs to be shot in a day. This many actors, and I sort of took it from there. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't actually bother me. Um, I, I don't think he's given himself a, a film by credit, but it, I think if he did, it wouldn't bother me. Um, but I know it bothers quite a lot of writers. I know, and and even it bothers some directors and, and other crew members that it's such collaborative medium, and yet a lot mm. of uh, directors will take the film by credit. 
Yeah, I would have to really not love something to let someone else direct it. <laughs> I'd really have to, uh, yeah, just or that it it wasn't me, which yeah. would you know intrinsically mean I didn't love it because <laughs> I love myself mm. so deeply. <laughs> Did this film you write feel like it was um, it reflected you or a part of you? Not. Not hugely, and I think I think that might be part of it. If I took something that was incredibly personal and let someone else direct it, maybe I'd feel different. Um, I'd feel differently about it. So yeah, maybe maybe that's the key. But uh, I mean, it is much harder to create something out of nothing than it is to direct a script. Not saying that directing isn't difficult because you know it's it's very very difficult. But when you've got that blank page staring at you, you know nothing else can come until the writer actually, you know, puts a word processor to, I don't know, electrons and, and create something. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I kind of like that film, that the TV has caught up and sort of given, you know, if, if film is the director's medium, TV is the writer's yeah. medium. And, and I feel that there's sort of this strange equality between, with these two jobs that are sort, that's sort of emerging. It's interesting because the early studio films, like if you look at, you know, um, often the, um, with a lot of films in the 30s and whatnot, um, the writer's name would often be, you know, like a Noel Coward sort of, you know, or Noel Coward's mm. Easy Virtue or something like that. And then the director would sort of almost be an afterthought, particularly with the way it all works these days. Like, again, like as well as Sorkin, there's people like Diablo Cody. Mm. Who have incredibly oh yeah, voices. I completely forgot about her. Yeah, she was the real breakout of Juno, or one of the three major breakouts. Well, yeah, there were two films sort of of the last few years where uh, the director and the writer have made a name for themselves in equal measure, and I think it was Diablo Cody and Max Landis um, with uh, Chronicle, and the two of them got. Uh, just as much name recognition, I guess, within you know the film community as the directors did, and maybe that's that's starting to change a bit. Maybe we're sort of paying closer attention to the writers, particularly if they've got a sole credit, and and if they're quite self promotional as well. And I think that definitely helps. <laughs> that's true. That is true. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully it's a broadening um, the, like their efforts will hopefully pave and and the whole showrunner thing as well that we're getting used to the idea of tel- from television. Of, of writers being in control that hopefully we'll, we're starting to, as a, as a, a viewing public, starting to become more open to this concept and start realising, oh, it all doesn't just spread from the director's head if they're not sole, the sole writer-director, mm. um, that there is, you know, that there is this other brain coming up with it as well and they have a voice from film to film to film. And, and that sort of helps things too if there's a distinctive voice from film to film, like you know, there's a, there's a a world of difference between a Diablo Cody and a Simon Kinberg, you know, like directors, I guess, because I mean, if, if journeyman directors don't often get mentioned in the uh, auteur conversation. Well, that's what's the standout quality of um, Diablo Cody uh, that was of that moment and hasn't really lasted. But the the dialogue was so distinctly of that time, mm, mm. and and her own and then that's the same thing with um with charlie kaufman that i mean you can you can feel a brand and that's what's you know the thing about the film industry that is i very cool and and also fickle and silly but that it's branding yeah when you can iconically 
Sorkin, an Aaron Sorkin as well, you can instantly recognize that. Just the same way that, you know, a Julia Roberts smile uh, mm. is old and familiar. Like, you know, I got, I was, this sounds so poetically strange silly and saccharine but like like your mother's hands but like you know it's like you become so used to these these hallmarks so you know when you when we all heard those that that dialogue the the honest to blog juno dialogue that you're like where did this come from um it was such a trademark of her and then when she came on the scene and was like i used to be a stripper and here i always wear leopard print like that was such a a brand Mm. but What's so fascinating to me about branding in Hollywood in relation to Charlie Kaufman is that his work is so, it's both commercial and it's like, it could be considered gimmicky in some perspective, but it also is really heartfelt mm. and, and gut-wrenching and it feels so personal. Mm. And that's quite a rare combination, Definitely. I think, to be like both unique and very personal and entire, like each each film is a completely different thing, a completely different um, concept. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, explores those themes with equal rigor and mind-bleedingly clever and sincere <laughs> all at once. But, but there was that thing when, you know, uh, Bing John Malkovich came out, you know, it wasn't just, wow, this Spike Jones guy really can direct, even though everyone was saying that. It was like, who... Whose mind would come up with this? Exactly. And uh, shall we fade up the music and find out in a moment? <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll that work much better in the edit when music actually does fade up. Um, <laughs> no, I prefer it all to be in our minds. Okay. <laughs> all right, so Desiree, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Helen's for Hyphen, it's Filmmaker of the Month. Oh, that was so scary and impressive. <laughs> Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman, the first, um, he is a director, but he's the first uh, filmmaker we've talked about on the show who is primarily known as a writer. Um, is that, because you, you uh, write and direct, was that a deliberate choice or do you just love love his work in general? I just... I love, love his work. I was thinking, I was going over um, in my mind who I would pick. And of course, there are so many different people that influence me and I think are incredible. But he's just the one person that I I would like chop off my arm to have made any of his films. <laughs> that, you know, the kind of, but the, also the kind of writer where it's like, you're so excited to see what they're going to come up with next. I I don't have that relationship to anyone else's work where, I mean, I do with a handful of people, but like, especially because, I mean, the other people that I feel like that about, there's also a bit of like my academic mind is turned on when I'm going to watch their work, I guess with like Olivia SAS, you know, it's her, any other auteur that I really love, but there's something about Charlie Kaufman's work that's both intellectual and instantly satisfying, like commercially viable while also really uh out of this world deep mm. in, a, in like a weird obvious and not obvious way i'm not being articulate about articulate about it but i'm trying to think about like the first time i saw being john malkovich it, it i saw it in this in this cinema with my family all these other films that i saw that influenced me you know i, I saw during film school or, or you know uh digging through vhs tapes at, at the 
at a used rental shop, but mm. to go with your whole family, usually you go see the shittiest like Will Smith movie <laughs> that opens that summer. But to get to go see Being John Malkovich with your family and then to have a an experience like, oh my God, what a weirdo, what kind of weirdo came up with this <clears> and <throat> we're all watching it together. Those kinds of films, I feel like were made primarily in the 90s and they're not being put out in wide release anymore. Mm. I'm just not sure where his work would live if he were establishing himself nowadays. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's the thing that it's easy to forget is that all of his work, all of his film work so far has taken place in a 10 year period between 99 and 08. Um, and that, you know, he's basically synecdoche New York is all that we've gotten for the last 10 years. And I, I feel like we need him more than ever at the moment. Agreed. What's also so fascinating about that is that that was his directorial debut and there was such a beautiful, I mean, especially when you look at Michel Gondry, who, whose writing attempts have not been as successful as his uh, directing attempts, you know, mm. like he worked, they worked so beautifully together and there's something about Synecdoche that, oh man, I want to be on board the whole time, but it loses me mm. and I, there's something there that I can't grasp. Like every time I think I can wrap my brain around what's happening, it goes three steps forward and I'm lost. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and I feel the opposite way about Michel Gondry's work that he's written and directed himself. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it's sort of such a fascinating thing to watch the push and pull of between a director and a writer who really belong together. Yeah. I'm, yeah. That was uh, that was such an amazing uh, time when being John Malkovich hit because it wasn't like if he'd waited a few more years we would have been drowning in that meta culture where everything's self-referential and, and and trying to be clever but at the time the, the, <laughs> the mere idea that John Malkovich would star in a film called being John Malkovich <laughs> about a portal that goes into his brain is just and then on top of that I think yeah. I, I think it was that concept that drew us all into the cinema and then to see that. What what I think sets Kaufman apart is that he doesn't just think of a high concept. He thinks through every possible facet of that. Like, even down, think of that line in Malkovich where, you know, he says, I had a plank of wood in my hands. Where did it go? Like, the characters are thinking through the philosophical implications of a plank of wood. And... <laughs> Every possible angle is explored in, in a way that a lot of pretenders that have come out since just haven't been able to do. Yeah, you're so right, too, about celebrities mocking themselves. Matt LeBlanc, James Vanderbeek. Mm. Everyone has to uh, have mm. a nod and a wink at their own celebrity persona. But there is nothing quite as pure as being John Malkovich in the seventh and a half floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And and it, it immediately establishes a trend. Like it's funny. Like the first time I saw it in the cinemas in '99, I, um, I remember thinking, "This is brilliant and really bleak," and I'm not really connecting with it. And I saw it again the other uh, a couple of weeks ago for this, um, the first time in 15 years, and it just blew me away. Absolutely floored me to the point where I now believe it's one of the greatest debuts by a writer and a director ever. And like it sets a theme with Kaufman's scripts, they seem to be about everything. Like, <laughs> this, exactly. What the hell? Like, this is about existentialism, determinism, fame, acting, relationships. Yeah, sex, power, family. Mm. It's the same with adaptation. And yes. if you break down the themes covered in adaptation, they're all mentioned in the first like two minute opening. 
And it's everything. It's all encompassing and it's meta and it's real and it's heartbreaking and it's stupid. It's a cartoon too. (laughs) That was yeah. Adaptation is, is is crazy. And just in between those, we had um, Human Nature in two thousand and one, which is a really interesting film, and I think suffers from not being like perfect and you know, yeah. I don't know, rule breaking and like it's it's got a lot of really good stuff in it. I think it's um, all of his films are about more than just the surface quirks, and this one is really about the conflict of our desires and our animalistic instincts like the airs and the pretensions that we put on and it's really funny and it's got a lot to say but yeah by not being as game-changing as the films either side of it I think it it, it suffers a little I think it suffers from being Michel Gondry's first feature Mm -hmm. I think that's it is like when I was watching it I was it really struck me that it was a first feature yeah the pacing is all over the place like someone who clearly hadn't worked with actors before, hadn't like had understood camera, but didn't understand relationship between people on screen. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and directed like everything, you know, beneath five minutes. And now he's got something that's 96 yeah. minutes and it's just, it has this middle that kind of goes on forever. Um, and it's very exceedingly clever and really funny. I'll, I'd also suggest it's a lot broader than anything mm. Kaufman has done before or since. Mm. And that's kind of a little bit of a turn-off as well. But, I mean, it's still... I think it's his sitcom it's... roots showing a little there because he, yeah. he did start out on Ned and Stacey and Get a Life and the Dana mm. Carvey show. I've never actually seen any of his sitcom work, but I'd love to seek that out. I, I would too. I haven't found the episode of Ned and Stacey that he did, but I'm familiar with the show, and it's really broad and cheesy. Mm. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Everyone has to start somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, in 2002, uh, he, he works with Spike Jones again on Adaptation, which is such a risky prospect. Like, I mean, he, he said he, he wrote it uh, thinking that he would never work again, like once he handed in the first draft. <laughs> and you get to see the process. I mean, this is the most meta film ever made. The process of writing the film is depicted in the film. Um, and, you know, the, the invention of the fake twin brother who represents everything that Charlie Kaufman <laughs> hates about Hollywood. And then you can actually pinpoint the moment at which Donald Kaufman takes over writing the film. It's... But then makes you <laughs> care about Donald Kaufman. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, that's the, that's the thing I keep forgetting until I'm actually watching the films, is those those nuggets of real, like, genuine emotion like it's such an intellectual exercise and you don't realize that he's drawing you in and there are moments like when cage is on the uh, when charlie kaufman is on the phone to his mother and he just starts crying and it just destroys you and there's like a moment like that in nearly all of his films that just wrenches you yeah there's such a sadness in, in all of them they're connected through this deep deep loneliness and self doubt Mm. Uh, and I feel like each film has a protagonist, a male protagonist who is riddled with self-hatred and self-doubt. And I identify with that so deeply mm. and they're all, it's so funny cause they're all male movie stars who are made to look much uglier than they are. Yeah. Mm. In all of the films. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Every single one of them, they're all met, you know, messed up or, you know, prosthetic up to look bald or fat or, you know, stringy yeah, well, Did Nicolas Cage put on weight or was that prosthetic? I, was, think he, I think he put on weight, actually. Yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, 
there was a great story that, and I haven't actually seen it, seen this story again since the film came out, so forgive me if my memory's off a little bit, but I remember Cage saying that he'd had dinner with Charlie Kaufman before they started making the film, and Kaufman had taken the menu and absentmindedly begun flapping it under his arm like it was a wing, and Cage, <laughs> Cage said he was doing this, he's pretty sure he was doing it just to see if Cage would do it in the film. <laughs> This this film, which is about the search for authenticity, is is amazing because he manages to write about himself without looking pretentious or self-absorbed. And I think both of those mm. things sort of add to the mythology. It really sort of solidified Charlie Kaufman as the writer uh, du jour, I guess. Speaking of not being pretentious, yeah. and then I just said du jour. So, <laughs> and that's the thing. And again, like you said before, it's the whole... Uh, being about so much, the title adaptation meaning various things like the actual act of adapting a book into a screenplay, the you know the kind of evolutionary adaptation of arts and flowers, mm. and then the you know the adaptation, the fact that he's a the the adaptation of being able to fit in, of you know starting if you don't fit in, adapt yourself until you do. You rewrite the script until it's something Hollywood will buy. Mm. You know, there's so many levels working here. It's it's just it's every film with this guy is like a magic trip. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you you write about um, Confessions of Dangerous Mind about how lucky he was to find Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry because even when paired with a really good director, and yeah, it was Clooney's first film, but it wasn't long before Clooney made Good Night and Good Luck, which I think is a perfect movie. So he's definitely got the talent, but they don't really gel. Their styles don't really come together. Yeah. And uh, I think that's that's why, as much as I enjoy this film, and I think there are a lot of great elements in it, I, I feel it's it's not quite more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I just it's just two completely different views of the world. And I just don't think a George Clooney would ever here's yeah, I don't think a George Clooney would ever see the world from a Charlie Kaufman point of view. Mm. And that's not a judgment on either one of them. <laughs> uh it's just like that thing I said before of that deep self doubt and self hatred. I mean, I think all human beings are linked through that, but I they're I mean, when I see her, I can really see why Spike Jones speaks the same language as Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Mm. They're different films, they're by different filmmakers, but there is a kinship there and there's there's something really I mean, I think Spike Jones is more romantic. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's I think I think certainly what he does in her. I I was watching that ending thinking uh Kaufman would never go there. I think the ending suits the film, but yeah. Kaufman wouldn't let let us off the hook that easily. Mm. No, no. Kaufman's films are always in, in, infused with this kind of. There's like a hopefulness, but an ultimate disappointment in real, in humanity. Mm. That like there's a, there's this hope that we you know we can embrace things like you know romance or, or life or you know each other and be better, but in the end we're probably not going to. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's deeply bitter and deeply, like, that's what's so funny is for such commercial films, they show such an ugly side of human nature. Yeah. yeah. And that's really rare. Usually commercial films do what they do. They they make you feel good. They take you out of your life, out of your day, out of your awful marriage, and take you on a yeah. fun journey. But there's these films don't 
they don't let yeah like just what you said left you let you off the hook i mean that's what i love about the ending of god the ending of being john malkovich where he's just like look away look away look Mm -hmm. away and it's so hopeful because you're seeing this happy couple and their happy beautiful child and then this man stuck in the psyche (laughs) in no man's land (laughs) and he's punishing himself that's absolutely you know those kaufman avatars in every film get get absolutely punished yeah Mm. which leads us to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind from 05 directed by gondry and uh Yes, a much better uh, effort on his part uh, after Human Nature with this perfect script about love and loss and memory. And and like you were saying before, Paul, it's another film that's about everything. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it's another magic trick. It's it's also kind of the perfect way to tell a love story, like mm. because particularly a true to life one, because you know you you're with someone for a certain amount of time and you and you still love each other, and you know. But in a lot of relationships, people begin to forget the reasons why they connected in the first place. Mm. And this is a film that takes you through that journey, takes you back, and. It's one of those things that's like nobody had ever really done that before and then you're watching this happen and you're thinking, well, this is perfect. Why is this seems so simple? Why has nobody figured this out before? It takes a genius. Yeah, and it's funny what you said before about the work being a magic trick because that's also what makes it such a perfect film for Gondry to direct because he does magic tricks with yeah. the camera. Mm. There's no one more well-suited to have shot this particular film because it needs for it to keep moving. I think it needs that childlike execution. Yeah. Because it's, it could be so, I mean, you could just get so sick of them. She's, she's, and and that's the relationship too, is um, she's so hard on him. Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't seem like a great relationship for most of the film. And at the end, when it seems hopeful that they'll do it all over again, it's also kind of a curse. That you like don't really want them to keep dating. Yeah, yeah. they're not suited for each other yeah. at all. Because he's so passive, and, and yeah, and, and I find he that, brings out the bully in her. Yeah, when we talk about Kaufman being a clever writer, I feel that clever is sort of a backhanded compliment because it, mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of there's, there's an implication implicit in that that like he's got this disconnection to humanity, and I think Eternal Sunshine refutes that better than any of the films because it's all driven by that emotion and that pain and that loss and even the structure of it, that incredibly clever structure where you've sort of got this meat cute that uh, pays off in unbelievable ways down the track. It's not just clever for the sake of being clever. It's, it's, it's driven by the emotion of, of these characters and, and how painful it, it is. And um, I, I think that's sort of what sets him apart uh, from so many other writers is that ability to, to sort of, I don't know, walk both of those lines at once without ever uh, drop, well, I guess juggle, okay, magic tricks, juggling. He never drops any of the balls. He's got the emotion, the, the clever structure, the, you know, the comedy, I guess, and, and, and they're all given equal weight and time. Yeah. I was just going to say structurally, I can't believe the work that he pulls off. Mm. I can kind of wrap my brain around once you get the concept of being John Malkovich, like maybe the execution, like if you have an incredible imagination and the humanity, it's, it's a straightforward story. But when I think about how he pieced together eternal sunshine, it's, it blows my mind. Mm. 
Mm. And and even the B story works gangbusters. Like this is mm-hmm. revisiting it. I suddenly like had this. The thing that was kind of making me tear up the most was almost uh, Mark Ruffalo's Ned. Mm. Oh yeah, when he what? sees her. Yeah, and just uh, post the you know the whole confrontation with Tom Wilkinson, and then when she's leaving mm. the office, and he's you know, and it's just like it's so heartbreaking, and it's like. Now this story's doing it too. It's like just, yeah, everything is just firing on 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 all cylinders. Mm. It's it's such a high concept that you, but you never come out of the the film thinking, yeah. But what if this had happened? What if that had happened? You know, because every yeah. he thinks of every possible <laughs> thing, um, right down to you know the, the moments that break my heart uh, when he says, you know, he doesn't know my darling Clementine, he doesn't know what Huckleberry Hound is. And then later on you find out that, you know, he grew up on those things. He, he loved mm-hmm. them as a kid. And, and you can't erase the bad stuff without erasing the good stuff as well. And, um, and to explore that in such an interesting, intricate, labyrinthine way is, is, it just blows me away. And it's, yeah, I think it's an absolute perfect film. Yeah, me too. And then Synecdoche, New York, 2008, the first script he wrote that he also directed. When I first saw it um, in, in 2008, I think, I felt that we weren't ready for it. Like, it was so far ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. He was doing things that, not just intellectually, but emotionally, I wasn't ready for. And, I felt uh, exactly the same way. Yeah. I was like, I need to grow into, grow up to, to understand this. Yeah, well, what is it, like seven years on and I feel like I'm not there yet? Like yeah. just, just watching it again and thinking, no, nah, I think I need another 10 years. I think the world needs another 10 I th- years. I think we need to leap another evolutionary rung on the evolutionary ladder or something. But this is, I, I want someone to write a book about um, Kaufman and Jones and Gondry because the way they influence each other, I think, is, is very potent and especially here in, in Synecdoche where you've got um, Kaufman really looking at that idea of infinite recursion, which is something that Gondry was doing back with his Bjork clips. You know, that's and, and I think there's a really strong through line there. If you look at some of those, those Gondry-Bjork clips and then look at uh, some of the things he does in Synecdoche, where things just get smaller and smaller, the, the constant infinite facsimiles, uh, uh, until you're just left with yeah. this, yeah, tiny nothing. Um, I, th- I think the collaboration that that he'd had with the two of them has really paid off at this point, and you can just see this sort of perfect melding of all of their interests and styles. Yeah, this is full circle, definitely. When you think of, especially when now that I we talked about her mm. and how, I mean, I mean, it just seems so Kaufman esque, and then um, this film seems really heavily influenced by some of Gondry's earlier work. Mm. And there's also, though, it's so dreamlike. Kaufman has mentioned David Lynch as being an influence on his career, and this is kind of one of the first times I've seen it. Like, it's so weirdly dreamlike and kind of comically nightmarish. Um, The way, you know, there's physical conditions he has and they go away, and then, you know, like time seems to kind of go back and forth. And... And the the way people like he seems to be whatever he's thinking, he's kind of worse, you know, like he's like these visions of his daughter throughout the years and they just get more and more kind of grotesque. 
Yeah, in terms of that kind of dream logic and almost this Zucker Brothers style layering of stuff in the background, like the kids watching cartoons and Caden's in the cartoon and mm. green poop and all this sort of bizarre, <laughs> like, what the hell is going well, it's, on? Like, the, the idea is it's yeah. the, art, the, the afterlife, isn't it? Like, he's dead. Mm. This is a... I mean, this is sort of like... a purgatory story. Yeah, that's that's how I've always seen it. I mean, that is what purgatory would look like. It's like you keep thinking... You keep getting the things that you want. Like, it's not like he's playing with this idea of, oh, I'm this schlub and no woman will sleep with me and no one will give me money to make art. No, he gets everything he wants and that's what destroys him because he doesn't know what to do with any of it. Um, and, yeah, the, the passage of time is just so... Yeah, well, you're right about the dreamlike thing, and that, but there's so much that... I think is so far removed from reality that, that I just assume he's dead. I mean, there are a couple of, of, of clues in there to mm. say that he, like... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The Hope Davis character, but one yeah. point is, why did you kill yourself? I guess my, my question is then, and I agree, I agree with you on all fronts, and it's like my question that I ask myself about this film is, is that... So I already have so much trust in this artist. Once you develop a relationship with someone whose work you love, you inherently trust that you're on a journey with them. Mm -hmm. And we've all sort of taken for granted. We're like, okay, well, he's in on a secret that we're not in on. But then if I were just seeing this film, I would not trust this man. And I I just wonder (laughs) who's right. Because is a film about purgatory a film worth watching? I couldn't find, like, this film did not speak to me and still doesn't, and I'm waiting to grow up and be mature, mature intelligent <laughs> enough adult, adult so that it does. But at the same time, it made me wonder about the nature of collaboration. And like I can say personally, I take so much from my producer. She <laughs> reads every draft and asks me the right questions. And without her, I, I would have made a very different first feature. Mm. And my work moving forward, I understand the people I choose to work with, their fingerprints are all over my work. And I think with this film, I keep asking myself, like, how, is it suffering because he doesn't have anyone pushing against him? Because it just seems like all these concepts, all these concepts, and as we've discussed, all the work that he's done that's so beautiful is a million, they, they can, consist of a million concepts, adaptation mm. and all yeah. of them. It's, it's The subject matter is all of the world, and yet it speaks... We get it. We're we're on a journey, and everyone's following the concepts. Whereas this is like a clusterfuck. Mm. I am drowning in concepts and in sets and in actors. I mean, that's it's like in like actual concepts and things. Mm. It is literally drowning and about to implode. It is kind of like unfiltered Kaufman. Like the other yeah. films have filtered it, and this is like. You're getting full force Kaufman now. Like this is a front row seat to his head. Yeah, can we like, handle it? That's yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> maybe a, we need an intermediary. You know, it's a bit like okay. David Lynch's Inland Empire in that sense, where you're like, "This is we've finally seen what it's like to exist inside this filmmaker's head." Not a hundred percent sure I want to. I think I liked it <laughs> when these restrictions were in place. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I look. I I think I love. Synecdoche, but like I, I still feel like I haven't got my hands around it. So I think I, I, don't I know love why. Synecdoche. <laughs> I, I love that statement because I, I mean, I get very angry as a viewer if I feel like I'm left out or mm. that someone's having a conversation without me. And like, I find that very, it's so funny. This term is thrown around a lot and it's even applied to me, my, my film a lot, but I find it hipster. This idea of like, see if you can catch up. If you don't, I don't give a shit. Mm. And 
I may not even be on the joke. Maybe I'm fucking with you. Who knows? See you later. Like this, it's just this <laughs> ambivalence for an audience. I think you really, like while I make work to please myself, I, I want to have a conversation. And if I, the concept of I want to like, the, I think I love this film or I want to love this film is, I'm, I keep, I don't know, in this conversation, I've been doubting myself because I'm like, wow, why, if someone else had made this film, you know, would I be wanting to love it? Would mm. you want to, would you be wanting to love it if it weren't Charlie Kaufman? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I would love to go to the world where I could find out, like the, the world yeah. in which I don't know, <laughs> maybe a hypnotist, but yeah, I don't know. That that's a, That's a really valid point. And I think there is a lot of artistic trust that goes into the viewing of this film. Uh, we know who Kaufman is before and, we, we sit down. And we know how sincere he is. Mm. And so yeah. that's why, you know, I, I don't feel that it is, he is fucking with us. Like, it's interesting because I've been looking at that with Paul Thomas Anderson's work of late with The Master and Inherent Vice, and I've been feeling that. I've been feeling he is going in this anti-audience direction where he's like, I'm going in this direction whether you think it's interesting or not. And if it's mundane or repetitive or meandering to you, fuck you, because I'm going there. Whereas I, I never really feel that with Kaufman. I just feel like it's that unfiltered thing. I feel like it's his, his obsessions literally getting the better of him and he gets caught up in it. Yeah. You're right. You, you, that's a really good point about, um, I, what was the word you used? Genuine? Yeah, yeah sincere, yeah. Sincere, yeah. That, that is true. And I forgot about that. That is what keeps me doubting myself because and that's the relationship I mean that's the thing about branding that is so it's both cheap and really vital when it comes Hmm. to filmmaking is that um he we know him and his sincerity and his um like his plight as someone who's who's grappling with too many concepts just the same way we know you know Hugh Grant's devilish flirty smirk and Julia Roberts smile Mm -hmm. So that film was 2008 and we haven't really heard much from him, but he hasn't stopped working because he was going to direct uh, his next script, which was Frank or Francis. But in uh, 2012, the funding fell through. I think Jack Black was going to be in that. It was about Jack Black, Steve Carell and Nicolas Cage. Yeah. yeah, it was about a director hunting down an online troll, which sounded, if it was, <laughs> again, it comes back to the, that synecdoche thing. If it was anyone else, I'd be wondering what kind of film they were going to make, but I was dying to see what he would have done with that concept. Um, hopefully that'll get up again one day, but he also did um, How and Why last year, a TV pilot that, that didn't actually lead to a series. He did a couple of plays. He did Hope Leaves the Theatre with Meryl Streep, Hope Davis, and Peter Dinklage. And in, in the world of the play, it's the last thing that Kaufman wrote before committing suicide. So he's still... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, uh, oh, he also co-created the, the TV show Moral Oral, but he also did a play called uh, Anna Melissa. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, under the pseudonym Francis Fregoli. So, you know, he's keeping busy, but, you know, we can't see any of this stuff. It's so funny because the business behind movies getting made is, is just, it's a weird one. Mm. And I like the strategy behind it is, I mean, I think it's absurd that he hasn't made, he didn't make Frank or Fences. Like, yeah, you look at that track record and like you said, most of his films have been commercially successful. I mean, so not as a director. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that'll fuck you over. Yeah. Like the synecdoche did flop and there's that whole thing it's like yeah okay uh so is spike jones and michelle gundry directing that no <laughs> oh okay <laughs> you know 
which is sad because we need his brain more than ever. We need his, his you know, that clear-eyed view of the human condition that he just nails so well. Yeah. It's not enough of it. Come back, Charlie. Come back, Donald. <laughs> we'll take both yeah, of you. I wish I was rich. I wish I could throw money at things. <laughs> but the thing about Synecdoche, I think, I mean, I'm talking out of my ass here, but I think that the reason it was it's so hard to bounce back from that is because it was a very ambitious film financially. Mm. It was so epic yeah, in scale and in production uh, that that's, I mean, that is a, a big pill to swallow. Yeah. I mean, if it had been a modest first feature that would, this would be a different story. Mm. And I wonder it, the size of the other two films that haven't been made. Yeah. It's definitely a thing like, yeah. You, and you can almost feel them getting swallowed by it. That complete, Sorry, there was something I was going to say, and <laughs> it's gone out of my head. Maybe it's on the uh, the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> <laughs> Just dropped out of the sky. Yeah. Yeah. Bang. yeah, that's what I was going to say. But weirdly, though, watching Synecdoche New York, there's this weird finality to it, where it's like, if it's the only film he ever makes as a director, it would almost be fitting. Yeah. There's this kind of strange, you know, being that, I guess, now that you mention it, Lee, that purgatory story, but so much of it is about death and about melancholy. It almost feels like a kind of a, a sign-off in a way. I mean, it's an incredibly um, ambitious way to start one's directorial career, but also a weirdly allergic way to end it. I hope not. I hope he gets to direct many things in the future. But, yeah, it's, it's just a sense that struck me watching it. Yeah, as much as I want him to come back, I do sort of like the idea of not only him ending on this note that feels like a farewell note, but also the idea that he could only exist within this 10-year period. He was so of a time that he couldn't exist before or after that as a writer. And part of that is that he was so unpretentious, he would never have, have said a <laughs> sentence like that. Um, but look at those 10 years. Like, I, I, I'm wondering, is it because we, is, does it have to do with the way films are made now, the way films are consumed or monetized? That's kind of interesting. I mean, this is sort of becoming a side point by itself. But <laughs> Being John Malkovich came out in 99, which is the year that most, like, there's a general kind of opinion out there that 99 is the probably the best year for movies post-1970s. Um, in, t- in terms of being this kind of flashpoint year of everything from, you know, Three Kings to being John Malkovich to Magnolia to The Matrix and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, and that came out that year, you know, and then by the time Synecdoche came out and flopped in 2008, the business was be- already becoming more corporatized than before. That was also the year Iron Man and The Dark Knight were released. What you're saying, Desiree, that, that, that does kind of correlate yeah oh my god (laughs) we're all fucked what if we lost him forever (laughs) no i mean i think i i don't i believe that there will be a place for him that he can carve out and that he has enough love out there that it'll happen i wonder what the project will be but things that get financed right now now, at the level, like, there's not a lot of space for those 7 to $10 million films. Yeah. They're not being made. And that's where that work fits. Yeah. Well, hopefully we will see something from him again. But in the meantime, Desiree, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me.
Thank you so much. It's been our pleasure, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Them, there, those two people with their stupid faces. Stupid faces.